If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome back to this special History Extra End of Roman Britain podcast series. This is episode six and I am David Musgrave. This time around I'm talking to Professor Robin Fleming of Boston College, Massachusetts. Robin is a historian, so she's coming at the topic from a slightly different angle from some of our previous guests who are archaeologists. However, her recent book, The Material Fall of Roman Britain, which was published in 2021, looks very much at the archaeological evidence, so I was super keen to chat to her. I dive straight in and ask Robin where she stands on the question of whether there was a collapse at the start of the 5th century. Yes and no. I mean, things did change. I think there is certainly a collapse of material culture that happens at the tail end of the 4th century and the early 5th century. Uh, We don't quite know when it happens because our dating isn't fine-tuned enough. Um, So, for example, there's a bunch of late pottery, and that late pottery um, from the Roman period is often pushed into the Roman period if it's because there's no way of actually really determining if it was made in 400 or 415 or 420. And so it's very difficult to know when a kind of material culture uh, collapse happened. It happened sometime in the very late 4th, early 5th centuries. Um, and so 
if you think about um, the fact that there's this collapse in material culture, what that means is that people who depended on that material culture have to live lives very differently. So if all of your pottery, for example, or the people who have supplied you with pottery uh, are no longer producing pottery, you have to figure out go-arounds about how you're going to live your life. And so I think it's useful to think of the collapse of these productive systems that stood behind the making of so much material culture in the Roman period. But we can look at that collapse, I think, incorrectly in thinking that because the material culture of the Roman period disappears because uh, the manufacturing techniques disappear and the people who were manufacturing um, are no longer making things the way they had been, it's easy to think that all the new style material culture that is coming in is the result of immigrants who are bringing new style material culture in with them. And so there's, um, I think the temptation is to see the material culture collapse, not as a material culture collapse, but as the kind of disappearance of everything that went before. And then everything that comes in that's new is a product of the immigrants who are coming from, you know, Germanic speaking lands on the continent. Let's just stop a moment because That's a view that Robin's given there that echoes what we've already heard in this podcast series, that we need to be mindful of conflating what seems to be undeniable changes in material culture. That's the stuff that archaeologists have been able to dig up and categorise with direct changes in the people who made or used those materials. That seems important, so I wanted to delve into this a bit more. So I asked Robin what changes she does see in culture and society from life in late Roman Britain in, say, 350 AD and 100 years later in post-Roman Britain in 450. I think that the Roman Empire is experiencing a number of difficulties in the middle of the 4th century, but in Britain, things are pretty okay in the middle of the 4th century. There's um, lots of evidence for... Uh, people living in very fancy villas. Uh, Towns aren't as big as they had been in the second century, but they're thriving. Uh, Local production of very Roman-looking material culture, like pottery, um, is strong. And it's clear that lots of um, different kinds of goods are moving across Britain. It's also clear that Britain um, is uh, really uh, very productive agriculturally, and it does seem as if the uh, the kind of agricultural wealth of Britain is being tapped by the Roman Empire, and a lot of that wealth is being uh, brought onto the continent and used to feed the armies of the late Roman Empire who are fighting um, along the uh, northwestern frontier. So um, it seems that things are going quite well, um, but things start going not very well Uh, quite rapidly after uh, 350 or so. And so by the time we get to the uh, the 380s or so, there's a lot of evidence for certain site types that are actually in distress or changing in quite a lot of um, interesting ways. So for example, many Roman villa sites begin to be um, turning from sites in which uh, elites... Uh, display their wealth and entertain their friends into kind of production sites. And we find that the great rooms of many villas are being turned into uh, centers of production. So there are corn drying ovens being put in the floors of Roman villas. Um, there, It looks like livestock is being sort of brought in and sheltered in some of these villas. And so these, these villa sites look like uh, the people who are in control of them are now sort of worried about producing things and they're bringing that production sort of closer to home. 
And they're no longer using these very fancy buildings the way they'd once been used as kind of sites of uh, Grand Roman living. And so that's a sign that there's something amiss in Britain, I think, and, and something seems to be going wrong a little bit with the economy. There are also indications that some of the centers of pottery production are, for example, slowing down. Not all of them are, but some of them are. Um, and there, uh, after 380 or so, uh, it does seem like there's less coin loss. There's still some sites that where you can see that a lot of coins are being used and um, passed on, but other places less so. And so it does look as if sometime in the 380s, 390s, things get very tough in Britain. And then around some, in the years just after 400, it seems as if the Roman state withdraw, withdraws from Britain and no longer, it's not going to do what the state used to do, which is collect taxes. And uh, the way the Roman state collected taxes was through tax in kind. And so many of the big uh, productive centers um, and villas and many of the Roman elites were, um, their prosperity depended on producing for the Roman state. And so when the Roman state withdraws, it looks as if the, uh, the Roman economy really unwinds pretty rapidly. So if you get to 450, um, you're in a very different Britain. The towns are dead. The villas are dead. There's been a lot of settlement shift. Many of the late Roman cemeteries where people had buried for a long time and many people had buried um, are no longer being used as burial sites. And so, um, and there's no, uh, does, does it look like there's mass production of pottery anymore? There's no coin use. Um, so things look dramatically different. And so something happens in a 40, 50, 60 year period uh, that makes England look very different in 450 than it did in 350. And there would be many historians who would say it's because the, you know, the, the invasions came, you know, the, the Hengus and Horsa and the Anglo-Saxons came. But it looks like the place was pretty lam- ramshackle and knocked down before many people started coming in from the continent. Let's take a, a quick pause there because, again, we've got a crucial point. It's not a collapse at the start of the 5th century, but a process of change that's been going on for a while and which perhaps speeds up as we move beyond this moment of political change that we've talked about as the Roman state withdraws and people are less able to rely on it for support and less obliged to provide labour and materials to support it. This tallies with what our other experts have said, but we've also heard that the actual response to this changing political station was different depending on where you were in late Roman or post-Roman Britain. So I asked Robin for her view on that. It was very different, and in the 5th century in particular, because, um, you know, there are many pieces of Roman culture that survive in the western part of Britain. Christianity, Latinity, um, elite families, they all seem to weather uh, the late 4th and early 5th centuries in places in Roman Britain that were um, less tied into the late Roman imperial economy than lowland Britain. And so places like that have quite different um, histories in the 5th century than lowland Britain, which is going to become England. Um, So I I think it's very hard to talk about all of Britain in the 5th century as if you're talking about a single unit. You've also mentioned elites a couple of times, and uh, in your book, you um, one of your book, your chapter titles, I think, is is the haves and the have-nots. 
Um, I, I wonder, it, presumably there is a very different experience between someone who's at the top of the tree in the late Roman period uh, and someone who's at the bottom of the tree as to as to how changes affect them as we move in into the into the fifth century of you, as you've described. Right. So I, I think if you're dependent in some way on the Roman state, so if you're a uh, uh, a member of the elite whose uh, power and prestige in some way uh, depends on the Roman state and your maintenance of it depends on the Roman state. If you're an imperial administrator, if you're a potter who uh, whose goods piggyback onto uh, the kind of uh, transportation systems that are used by this Roman state, if you live in a town which is more dependent on the Roman state than not living in a town... Uh, the collapse of the Roman economy and the withdrawal of the Roman state, I think, are very, very hard on you. If you're down on the farm and you um, have been, uh, your labor has been uh, taken from you by your landlord and you pay rents and you pay taxes to the Roman state, um, are you sorry that the Roman economy is unwound and the state is withdrawn? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think it depends on your local circumstances. If some little uh, local elite family manages to maintain control and keep bullying you out of your produce and your rents, uh, then things might not change. But I think for a lot of people, when you remove the state and you remove the power of elites, there's evidence that for some people, the fall of Rome was a good thing, not a bad thing. It's an interesting uh, point that just occurs to me from your answer. Would there have been anyone in Roman Britain who wouldn't have noticed the end of Roman Britain? That's a that's a good question. I mean, I think there are some forms of Roman material culture that are so ubiquitous that it looks as if the kind of long arm of uh, Roman culture and Roman material culture in particular really reaches down pretty far. So, for example... You find hobnail shoes on all kinds of sites. Those are a Roman introduction. They're really good in Britain because, you know, people slip in the mud and it's nice to have shoes with grip on them. Um, the the kinds of mass-produced pots that you find um, are very widespread in Britain. So I think people would have noticed those things disappearing and noticed that they have to make do with new kinds of material culture, make things on their own, cook differently because the pots they can make by hand don't operate the way kiln-fired pots do. And most people probably paid taxes and rents. And so I think you would notice if those disappeared. I mean, there could be corners, but I, I think most people would have would have noticed that things were changing. One of your one of your big lines of attack to understand this is is to take a proper look at the uh, economic impacts of what happened with the uh, the breakup of the Roman network. I guess isn't it? Um, and, and and what that meant for people's daily lives, because as you say, if you're not having to pay tax or you're not having to produce a surplus, um, then your lived experience becomes very different. Is that is that um, is that the right line? I think that that is the right line. And if you, I mean, you think about what most farmers in the world uh, left to their own devices want is they want to be subsistence farmers. And by subsistence doesn't mean barely having enough. It means having enough and a little more. And um, what farmers like to do is they like to raise a variety of crops to buffer um, any kind of risk that might come up. So if the oats don't work, maybe the wheat will work. If the cattle have a problem that year, maybe your sheep will have a problem, uh, won't have a problem. And so it's a way of um, ensuring that you get by year to year with enough. Um, And what the Roman state 
and Roman elites wanted was they wanted specialty agriculture. They wanted big grain and they wanted big cattle because that's what the Roman state worked on. And so farmers being able to revert back to a more subsistence multi-cropping regime with different kinds of, you know, some some pasture, pastoral work, some, um, some crop raising, it, it's just going to be better for them. So let's take a moment again, because once more, this takes us back to the narrative that uh, James Gerard referred to in a previous episode, that the disconnect with the wider Roman political and economic network was clearly disruptive and problematic for some, but also perhaps beneficial in a way for others, in the sense that it released the have-nots from some of the onerous obligations that they were required to fulfil. I wanted to know from Robin how that picture was actually evidenced in the archaeology, particularly in terms of corn dryers, which is something that she talks about in her book. Well, yeah, I mean, corn dryers is one of the, yeah, corn dryers and mills, right? I mean, these are, these are, two very prominent features in the Roman period. And there are also above ground grain storage facilities um, that are uh, found not only in Britain, but they're found across the Roman empire uh, because big grain is being grown and big grain is being moved and big grain is being stored. Um, And once we move into the very late fourth and early fifth centuries, a lot of these very ubiquitous features disappear. As I might add, do rats in Britain because rats are big grain storage animals. And a lot of the grain paths seem to disappear as well. And so it does seem that people aren't growing, um, they, aren't, they aren't participating in this big grain agriculture uh, the way they, they used to do. Um, so they're doing something else, right? They're not, instead of having to, to grow a bunch of um, wheat so that you can give part to the Roman state, you might be able to relax a little and grow some rye or some oats or whatever. Um, and you're not... Uh, you know, you're not paying it out. There's no, there's not much of a market for it, but you're living a better life because you can buffer against risk. And um, one of the points you make in your book is that it's not. We we have a view in the Western world that subsistence agriculture is is not good, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Right. Well, the the, the market op- economy is pretty tough on farmers, actually, uh, particularly in in farmers in the developing world. Um, and I think that we have evidence in our own world of what that market economy can do to small-scale farmers. And so we should take that to heart when we think about what it's doing to small-scale farmers in the Roman period as well. There are sites where it does look like people are um, are eating a lot of meat. Uh, it there is there's some um, there's a little bit of bioarchaeology that suggests that people are living longer in the early Middle Ages than they did or ordinary people um, than they did in the early medieval period, and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, one might simply be that they're not living in urban communities, and urban communities are very hard on the health of their populations. But it might be because they're actually uh, better nourished and better fed because they're no longer having to pay so much out to landlords and to the state. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And you mentioned urban communities there, and, and you, you mentioned it earlier in the interview as well. Should we imagine that the, the towns and cities of Roman Britain very rapidly become wastelands, or is that a, a, a bit of a, a wild statement? I mean, you think about places in the United States that have deindustrialized, uh, places like Detroit, where there are whole elaborate neighborhoods and movie palaces and things that have just fallen into ruin um, at this point. And that didn't take very long. That took 30 or 40 years. Um, did it happen fast enough that people would notice it? I mean, if people live 30 or 40 years, if they've got a nice long life in the in this period of the fourth and fifth centuries, would they have noticed how bad things were getting or not? I mean, is it something, I think it might've been slow enough that you just saw that things were falling apart without things just imploding. And on that, in your sort of trawl of the evidence that we have, how much evidence do you see of people actively trying to maintain a Roman way of life uh, or something that's, that, that, was, that was actively pursued in the, in the later fourth century? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are lots of communities that are trying to hold on. I think it's um, it's easier to see in uh, the West, uh, where uh, many uh, sort of Roman cultural practices persisted. So if you look at some of the hill forts that are being repopulated in the West of Britain during this period, uh, there are clearly elites in control. There are clearly elites whose tastes or at least the tastes of their parents and grandparents, had been set by the Roman Empire, um, who are still maintaining things like, it looks like perhaps Roman dining practices as, as best they can, and uh, particular kinds of elite lifestyle um, are being maintained. In other communities, there, there are indications that people are trying very hard to carry on burial practices that had been important to their parents and grandparents. Um, so we see, for example, the use, reuse, maybe scavenging of Roman pottery to use in um, post-Roman graves, for example, post-Roman funerals. Um, So different people are trying to kind of carry on Roman ways or bits and pieces of Roman ways in different ways um, within Britain. So what we're hearing here is we've got some people actively trying to maintain elements of the Roman lifestyle particularly people who we might describe as elites. And that's an echo of what we talked about with those mosaics at Chedworth Roman Villa in the first episode. But we've also heard about the loss of specific sorts of material culture. And this is a big part of Robin's research to look at the associated skills that disappeared and the new ones that might have developed in the 5th century. I asked her to give us a little bit more about that. 
I think there's both a massive de-skilling and a massive reskilling in this period. It's a little bit like the pandemic where we all ended up going home and learning how to cook because restaurants weren't open anymore. Um, so I think that a lot of the kind of Roman style material culture that disappears, people have to learn how to make it on their own, right? So uh, there's lots of indications now that there's a lot of household potting going on in the early medieval period, right? That's not something that had happened in the Roman period. Um, and so so people are learning how to make for themselves. But in terms of the de-skilling, I think the problem is really that uh, because the Roman, uh, the late Roman economy is starting to fall apart, the kind of, there, there's a, there is all sorts of specialist labor that works together. And as bits and pieces of that specialist labor disappears because the economy is falling apart and there's no way for those people to, to make a living anymore, um, you find that kind of whole categories of material culture disappear. So for example, if you think about potting, it's not just potters who are making potting, pot, potting possible in the Roman period. Uh, there are charcoal makers, there are kiln builders, there are teamsters who are hauling this pottery around. And if any one group of labor specialists who work together to make pottery and move pottery around Britain disappear, then there's a possibility that other people within that chain of production are also going to lose their ability to make a living as well. And so we, we see whole constellations of material culture going away. And we can see this in the building trades, for, for example. So there are lots of people who are involved in the building of fancy Roman buildings. Um, but as different skilled workers disappear, uh, you find that people are no longer able to put up Roman style buildings anymore because maybe you don't have any roofers in your neighborhood or you don't have anybody who uh, really knows how to uh, to make uh, mortar anymore. Um, so it's it's really about these kind of constellations of skilled workers that start unraveling, I think, is the problem. Let's take one more quick pause. We've talked a fair bit about the experience of people who were already in living in Britain as the influence of the Roman Empire waned. What we haven't given much attention to is the other big aspect of the 5th century conversation, namely the small matter of migration of people. I wanted to know what Robin's take on this is, specifically whether she thinks there is, in fact, a significant movement of population during this period. Again, I think it depends on where you are and when you are, and it also depends on who's moving. So, for example, in the west of Britain, where things Romans survive a little better because uh, people weren't as tied into the late Roman economy, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of incoming people in the west of Britain. They just happen to be coming from Ireland, for example. Um, and I think we need to put those people who are coming in from the West in conversation with the people who are coming in from the East as well. Uh, so I think we have to think more holistically about migration in this period um, as not just a, a, a Germanic event, right? There's lots of people on the move in this period um, and not all of them are going to, you know, turn into Anglo-Saxons when they grow up. Um, the, the other thing is I think that if, you know, again, we need much better radiocarbon dating, and we need a lot more isotope work. Um, but it doesn't, it looks like people are starting to come in from the continent, maybe in four, the 425 or so, but not very many. It's the, the real event, and when we can really see um, 
evidence for more people coming in is really at the tail end of the fifth century and the early sixth century. So it's a the whole place is collapsed before these people come. They don't knock anything down, right? They um, it's it's already whatever used to be there isn't there anymore. Um, and so and people I think start coming in at a trickle, and then I think they come in at a greater um, a greater pace. But I also think that we, when we think about migration in this period of the 5th and 6th centuries, besides thinking about what it looked like in 400 and what it looked like in 600, and it's going to look different, I think we also have to put that in conversation with what migration looked like in the Roman period. Because lots and lots of people were on the move in the Roman period as well. And I think we need to, again, it's about putting these two periods together and looking at kind of waves of migration, who's migrating, why they're migrating across the whole of the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. And I think we'd get a different picture of whether what's happening in the early Middle Ages is totally unique and unprecedented, or it's just part of a longer story. Sure. So it's not specifically a new thing. It's, you know, people moving around, as you say, the Roman Empire is famous for people moving around, isn't it? Yeah, and people have been, you know, people have been moving since the Neolithic, right? So there, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people have been on the move for a long time, and that, you know, in the, in the early Middle Ages, there's a there there is a lot of migration, but there's a lot of migration in the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries as well into Britain. So there, there's a very long story of migration in Britain. How far does the archaeological evidence and the scientific evidence that we know of at the moment? Um, agree or disagree with that historical story that is told by um, the later sources of, of these um, incoming Germanic mercenaries, I guess, invited to to, to, to help out the, the poor old Romano-British population. Is that is that completely thrown out of the water then? I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, I think the problem with the scientific evidence at the moment, well, I think there's a bunch of problems with the scientific evidence at the moment. One is that there's not enough of it. Um, we need to do, you know, five examples or 15 examples do not tell the whole story of the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh centuries, right? So we just need a lot more work to be done on this before we have some idea about what the numbers are telling us. People, not just historians, but archaeologists also need to know more about what the science is actually telling us and what the science can tell us. Um, It's very important, I think, for scientists and historians and archaeologists to work together on this because scientists know a lot about ADNA and they know a lot about isotopes, but they don't know anything about the context of the period that they're talking about. And so I think it's really important for people to work together on this because at the moment, there's all of this new evidence, there are all of these new techniques, and every uh, side is able to use exactly that same evidence to argue their point. So clearly something is wrong here. Um, you know, it's just, you can take that evidence and you can kind of apply it to whatever argument you want. Um, there, there's going to be a conference um, this summer on migration and the early Middle Ages, which I think will be very, very helpful because I think a lot of people will be coming together to kind of have a sit down and think about how you actually use the evidence to see the period in a fresh way rather than fighting battles that people have been fighting for the last 150 years. 
We'd better just take a quick moment because Robin has just mentioned ADNA, ancient DNA, and isotope analysis. So if you're scratching your head about what they mean and how that fits in the story, then fear not. I have the experts lined up in the next couple of episodes to explore and explain those scientific techniques and tell us what they can actually tell us about the picture that we're looking at. There is, I think, a general, though not universal, consensus that there is, or was, a reasonable amount of movement of people in the 5th century, not just from the continent, but also from the, from the West. So what's the dynamic between those incomers and those who are already here? Back to Robin. I think that it's very difficult to tell because how do you know who's who? I mean, unless you look, unless you're lucky enough to find people who have uh, very strong indications um, in their strontium and oxygen isotopes that they have moved from someplace else. Um, everybody is using the same material culture. They're wearing the same brooches. They're wearing the same clothes. They're using the same pots. So, how do you tell somebody whose grandfather was born in Britain from somebody whose grandfather was born in? Um, the lowlands. You you can't. And as a matter of fact, using isotopes, you probably can't tell the difference either. And using ADNA, you probably can't tell the difference. Um, because those populations have a lot to do with one another and they're living on similar hard geology. So, I mean, definitive answers are very hard to find. So as I've mentioned, we've got much more coming up on the new science and how it's adding an extra dimension to the story. Though as Robin warns, uh, and I think everyone involved in the subject is aware, all researchers need to get their heads around what it's telling us and indeed get their heads together to properly understand it. You'll remember, hopefully, that James Gerrard in the last episode talked about how people might have been actively reimagining who they were and their cultural identities. And it's one of the things that is definitely coming through in these conversations, I think, uh, the fact that it's really, really difficult to establish what people might have considered their identity or their ethnicity from the material culture and physical remains that survive and the scientific techniques that we can employ on them. In fact, this whole question of ethnicity is probably one of the most intractable issues and perhaps really something that we're much more hung about now than anyone alive in the 5th century really was. I think the ethnicity of these people is much more important to us than it was to them. Um, and I think that the way ethnicity works, I think that, I mean, did people have an ethnicity in the fifth century, um, I'm not so sure. I think that once elites start uh, reforming in Britain, uh, it becomes very important for them to differentiate themselves in some ways. And I think the kinds of ethnic markers that might actually be ethnic markers begin to develop in that period. And I think that uh, they then use ethnicity as a kind of tool um, in order to uh, shore up their own power and to differentiate themselves from others. But whether people down on the farm had ethnicity um, is an entirely different question. And, um, you know, when you, when you ask if if somebody in the fifth century was British or if some, or, or from British ancestry, or somebody was from Anglo-Saxon ancestry, uh, would anybody have known or cared? It's very hard to to know the answer to that. Um, I, I think that we care about it a lot. Um, but I, I also care a lot about the term Anglo-Saxon, and there's quite a difference between um, what uh, is felt uh, 
whether it's felt to to use that term is proper or not, it's different in North America than it is in Britain generally, although there are people in Britain who I think share my belief that it's a term that should be um, lit on fire, torn up, and never used again. And my um, my reasons for not liking the term very much have to do with, in part, uh, it, the kind of history of that term, right? It's a... It's a it, there's evidence that people used the term Anglo-Saxon in the pre-conquest period, but it happens much later than the 5th and 6th and 7th centuries. It's just not a term that people used then. And nobody came over in a little boat from the continent to, to England in the 5th or 6th centuries and stepped ashore and said, I'm an Anglo-Saxon, because there was no such thing as an Anglo-Saxon. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of hodgepodge invention um, and it was not an identity in that period. And the trouble with using, continuing to use that term, um, even if we all say we know better and we don't really mean what people think we mean when we say Anglo-Saxon, is that when you talk to regular people, uh, regular people think when you tr- use the word Anglo-Saxon, you mean Anglo-Saxon. So when you talk about an Anglo-Saxon pot, who made the Anglo-Saxon pot? Well, Anglo-Saxons made the Anglo-Saxon pot. So suddenly you're telling people um, who aren't necessarily trained in the field, um, that uh, the people who you don't really believe in are responsible for everything and making everything in this period. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible term. It sh- it's so misleading, it should be thrown away. And then there's the problem of the white nationalists and actually believing that, you know, white people conquered England and are going to save the world. And that's a problem too. You make a very good argument there. I wonder if we got in a time machine and went back to fifth century Britain, we're wandering around and we're sort of pointing at people and said, so what are you? Are you are you English, Romano, British, Anglo-Saxon? What would people say? Would they say, I'm, I'm none of those things. I'm simply, I belong to to the, this this group, this city, this tribe, what what, what would what would people say? Do you imagine? Uh, well, I, I think in the you know I think in the early fifth century they're most likely to say, well, I live in this place and these are my family. So your very local area and who you're related to must be important. And I think there's um, I'm quite convinced that there's evidence that in the fifth century um, there are people of mixed ancestry. There are newcomers and uh, people who've been there for a long time who seem to be uh, making common cause and creating families and living together. So um, all of these people together are creating whatever is going to come out of the fifth and sixth centuries. So it's not just the newcomers from the continent who are making the English English. It's the people who've been there all along are participating in this. And they're, even though they might have had all their ancestry come from um, from Britain and had lived there since the Iron Age, they're participating in making the English too, which is another reason why Anglo-Saxon is a bad term. It just writes out the indigenous population completely in the story of the making of the early Middle Ages and making of, uh, of lowland Britain and England. So this is the process that James Gerard might describe as ethnogenesis. Yes, or yes, many, yes, many, many people would describe it as ethnogenesis. But the 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 thing about ethnogenesis is it is not just that cute German girl and that nice local Roman boy making babies together, right? That's not just ethnogenesis. Ethnogenesis is what happens a few generations around when a local bigwig comes around and says we people, people like us all wear the same brooch and we speak the same dialect and we eat the same food because we're a people now. 
right? And so the ethnogenesis requires elites to kind of marshal uh, the kind of culture that's emerging and claim for himself uh, that it's a kind of people and it's a people that he rules. For the benefit of everybody who hasn't spent years studying this as, as, as you have, how, how, do, how do we get from this uh, society which is, feels um, quite structured and ordered, the late Roman British society, where we kind of have a sense about what that means, or, or at least maybe we don't, um, to, this, to this new society, which is, which is markedly different, isn't it, in, in, the, in a couple of centuries later, uh, which has trappings of, I know, I, I can't think of a better word to, to use to describe it than Anglo-Saxon, pull me up on it and say something else, but it's, it's, a, different, it's a different way of, of well, living I, I and existing. I would say early medieval. Sure, okay. You don't need to put an ethnic label on it. No, okay. So, so how, do, how do we get to, how do we move from that one, one source of society to this quite different source of society? We're very different from the 19th century, right? We're always different from what happens in the past. But the the thing that's different between the, say, the 19th century and the 21st century and uh, the period that we're talking about is there is this kind of rapid reconfiguration that has a very um, marked material component where it does seem like a lot of stuff gets erased and things, people have to start over in a lot of ways. And I'm thinking here about, you know, there's not very many places in the world where there's been a real material culture collapse. I mean, it happens in Central America under the Mayans, for example. Not that many places where uh, literacy goes away, written language goes away, goes away in Britain. Um, And so whatever happens, happens very fast there. And so I think that it's it's the rapidity that, um, makes the the change seem so startling, I think. But living through it, I think if you're living through it and you're living in the last decade of the fourth century, the first couple of decades of the fifth century, you must really feel it. Do you feel it in the same way if you're living, it, is, the, is the late fifth century that different from the early sixth century in a way? Is it changing so rapidly that you would notice it's changing? I mean, we can see it changing uh, from the archaeological record, but would people living through that feel it as, the same kind of change as happened in the very late fourth, early fifth century. I don't think so. But the, I, I do have to say the kind of rapidity of the collapse makes me nervous um, living in um, end times as we seem to be, you know, with, uh, you know, climate collapse and pandemic and all this stuff. It, you do realize that things aren't as steady as you think they are. Things aren't as eternal as they seem when you're living in them. Let's just take a one more moment because we'll come back to whether there are modern parallels to what happened in the 5th century in the final episode of the series. And we'll also dwell a bit more on whether our experts have found their analysis of the period at all influenced by the seismic events that we're living through now as well. But to finish this episode, I just wanted to be clear about whether Robin thinks that the word apocalypse is appropriate at all for the experience of people living through the end of Roman Britain. I think for some people, I think it was pretty hard. So again, it always depends on who you are and where you are. I mean, look at the pandemic. It's been very, very hard on some people. And a lot of people, a few billionaires have had a very good ride in the pandemic. So I do think it's situational. So you've been listening to Professor Robin Fleming of Boston College, Massachusetts, and her book, The Material Fall of Roman Britain, is out now and covers a lot of the ground we've discussed here in far more depth. 
Next episode, we're going to dive right into the science with a look at what stable isotope analysis can tell us about the population of Britain in the 5th century. Dr. Sam Leggett is going to be our guide. And if science befuddles you, do not fear because Sam explains it all with crystal clarity. 